Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. It's a, it's a true pleasure to welcome you to uh, our distinguished panel today. We're going to be talking about public diplomacy in the Trump administration. Um, significant changes have been taking place within the State Department in this field. Um, yet, at least I think, as someone who studies this um, extensively, uh, not enough has really been um, coming forth about the extent of those changes and the effects they are having on the effectiveness of U.S. communication with um, other publics in other countries. Um, we have with us today, um, our main speaker will be Assistant Secretary of State and Senior R Official in the Bureau of Global Public Affairs, Michelle Geider. We are really thrilled that you could join us today, and we look forward to this event. Um, she uh, joined the State Department on February 3rd, 2018, but and a year later, um, she uh, became, uh, uh, well, she was already Assistant Secretary, but she took on the responsibilities of the Under Secretary of State um, for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs two uh, bureaus which were uh, united under Ms. Gaida. Uh, she has led one of the largest restructurings in the State Department uh, in 20 years. So this is um, a, a, a very ambitious and interesting effort which has now created the Bureau of Global Public Affairs, um, of which she is the head. Ms. Geider brings a wealth of global strategic communication experience. Um, she was global corporate communications um, senior vice president for Weber Shadwick in New York. And she has also previously in Washington um, worked for Newt Gingrich as the lead member of his communications team and communications director for GOPAC. Um, she holds a master's degree in political management from George Washington University and a BA in political science from UCLA. And one of the things that impressed me most on, on Ms. Um, Guida's uh, CV was that she was team captain on the UCLA gymnastics team, which I think is fabulous. Um, thank you so much for being here today on this rainy morning, and uh, over to you, Ms. All right, good morning. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, all of us are very excited to be here today to have a conversation with you around public diplomacy and all that we're focused on at the State Department in communicating American values, communicating American foreign policy, and really engaging the public in advancing the interests of the United States all across the world. There has never been a more important time for public diplomacy, and public diplomacy today is more important than ever. Engaging people, engaging the public, individuals, and citizens in American values, in American foreign policy, and the critical issues of our time is not only a um, nice to do, but a requirement for success. And there's a number of factors that are contributing to this. The world is increasingly interconnected. It's increasingly transparent. And so you've got a number of factors that are making public diplomacy core to how we succeed at the State Department. The first is technology. And we know that there's a proliferation of channels, platforms, and new ways that we're able to communicate with citizens from across the world so that we're engaging and having conversations and reaching new types of audiences through these tools and channels. It presents enormous amounts of opportunity, 
But then you also have technology driving new challenges and risks. If you read the uh, ACPD report, the Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy, the report in 2017 on can public diplomacy survive the internet, take a look at the trends two almost now three years ago that they're highlighting. Chatbots, artificial intelligence, computational propaganda, right? There's the scale and the speed of technology and the tools now to pump information into the ecosystem that we're all living in has dramatically changed. And again, presents a lot of risks, right? You can use that as tools for truth. You can also use it as tools for fiction, right? And we're seeing some malign actors using these as a way to uh, confuse and spew misinformation, disinformation into the world. So there's a lot of risks and new opportunities that technology is bringing to the way in which we do public diplomacy. In parallel, you see more people around the world having empowered voices through technology. Social media is allowing people to pay attention, to speak up, to have their voice be heard. So they're pressuring institutions, they're, they're affecting change because their voices now are more empowered through technology and these new platforms. So you've got technology, interestingly enough, making people more important and the way in which we engage and um, communicate with people more important than ever to public diplomacy. Secondly, we're in a new era of great power competition with China, with Russia, with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And there is more demand and um, in importance to the way in which we communicate American values across the world, uh, more so than in any other time. And engaging people proactively in that message and in those stories to help advance the values of the United States. And that really is the heart of public diplomacy. So we know that diplomacy isn't just government to government conversations anymore, right? We have to engage the public and people in what we're doing. We just celebrated this summer the 230th anniversary of the State Department. And we know that our mission over the course of those 230 years has stayed the same, and that is to advance American interests in every corner of the world. But how we do that requires new thinking and new approaches. And public diplomacy is really at the forefront in how we do that, engaging people in society and citizens in making sure that we're effectively advancing American diplomacy. So quick overview of how we're doing that at the State Department and my colleagues here will give you a deeper dive into their areas of expertise. But we've got thousands of public diplomacy officers all across the globe engaging the public and citizens in American values and communicating American foreign policy. We've got regional media hubs in Brussels, London, Manila, Miami, Dubai, Johannesburg, so every major media market and region where we're engaging with the media and foreign audiences. Because we know there's still a lot of constituencies and areas of the world where digital hasn't penetrated as much as it has here in the United States. And so we're engaging with traditional media in many forms in order to reach those audiences and tell our story. Digitally, we are engaging with millions and millions of fans and followers and subscribers across social channels, digital channels of the State Department, um, having real-time conversations, using those as really important listening tools to understand what's important to the audiences that we're trying to communicate with. We're using technology, and um, Matt Lusenhop here will talk about tech camps. We're using technology and bringing together technologists and digital experts together with civil society leaders in countries to help them use digital to encourage and advance civic engagement, transparency, government participation, empowering more voices through social media. We're engaging in, um, through the GEC, countering misinformation and disinformation and propaganda from both state actors and non-state actors. And you know, through um, ECA as well, amid all of this digital and, and technology change, not forgetting that human relationships and people-to-people -people ties and interaction are still at the core of how we do our job. And those human relationships, amid all of this digital change, are more important than ever. So Matt will talk a little bit about that. And I think one of the ways, uh, as was mentioned uh, earlier, that we're really trying to modernize and advance how we do public diplomacy for 2019 and beyond is this merger that we just did to create the new Global Public Affairs Bureau. It was the largest restructuring at the State Department in 20 years since the merger of USIA with State. And the whole purpose and mission behind that was to elevate and enhance and accelerate how we're communicating with audiences all around the world 
in real time to advance our policy and to advance our values. Um, I was very pleased to lead this alongside Nicole Chulik, who is a head of the International Information Programs Bureau. We merged public affairs and IAP together to create global public affairs. But really putting an emphasis on data and analytics, we increased uh, in multiple ways our investment and resources in data and analytics to inform and to measure and improve how we're communicating uh, in audiences and with audiences all across the world. A lot of uh, emphasis on content and different types of ways and, and creative ways that we can communicate with audiences uh, across multiple platforms, whether it be traditional, digital, or emerging platforms, and have placed a focus, a future focus, on platforms um, that will be emerging, whether it's augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, but how are we thinking about communicating in those types of platforms to make sure that we're advancing American diplomacy as technology continues to drive change. So seeing a lot of ways through the merger um, in global public affairs of how we're deepening and accelerating and enhancing our ability to communicate across the world. And you know, one of our greatest advantages, and I'll close with this, is that the United States, amid all of this change in technology, amid great power competition, has the best story to tell. That is our competitive advantage. It is the values and the founding values that make our country the most successful and prosperous country in the history of the world. And American foreign policy today, our story, is grounded in our founding principles and our fundamental values under the leadership of President Trump and Secretary Pompeo. Right? We know at the State Department that our first duty is to the American people, right? To preserve their rights, to advance their interests, to protect their security, and to defend their values. And in that pursuit, and the focus of the State Department, is to seek and find and create partnership and friendship and cooperation and alliances with countries and strong, sovereign, independent nation who share our values, who choose independence and cooperation over global governance, who respect the rights of their neighbors, and who promote security, peace, dignity, and prosperity for their citizens and those across the world. Right? So as, as the president said at the UN General Assembly in 2017, and as he echoed again this year, we're calling for a great reawakening of nations, their people, their pride, their patriotism. And so at the State Department, we are uniquely positioned because of our global footprint, because of the ways in which we can communicate and engage with people in countries all across the world, not just here at home, um, have a great story to tell about the partnership, friendship, and cooperation that we help create with countries across the world that share our interests in order to achieve mutual gain. You can see this in the Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom. The first ever was hosted by the Secretary last year at the State Department. He did it again this year. Um, huge gathering, more than 100 countries participated to help advance religious freedom. Think about how we end religious persecution across the world. In the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS, you have the United States as well as 80-plus countries coming together to cooperate and think through how we stop the threat of ISIS everywhere across the world. You see it in the new trade deal that the president just signed with Prime Minister Abe. You see it in the USMCA. The Warsaw Ministerial that we participated in in early 2019 in February, where you have countries coming together to think about Middle East peace and security. We now have several working groups. Um, the United States will host one, so will South Korea, Bahrain, and Romania, and Poland to talk about with, in partnership in multiple countries, how we're going to help advance peace and security in the United States um, and all across the world. Um, and sorry, the Middle East. In Venezuela, you have the United States and 50-plus nations coming together to recognize and support Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president and the national democratically elected assembly. And when and where we participate in international agreements and institutions, it is in order to advance American interests and American ideals. And the Secretary has made this very clear. So we will cooperate with and partner with and form friendships with countries who share our values so that we all benefit together. So this is America's story. This is our public diplomacy mission. We're bringing all the tools to bear that we can in order to engage the public in the critical issues of our time, to communicate our interests, to advance and protect them. Uh, day in and day out, so that we are serving the interests of the United States and those of our fellow citizens. And so with that, I'll turn it over to my colleagues here. Um, I'll introduce first um, Nicole Chulik, who is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for our new Bureau of Global Public Affairs. 
Uh, Nicole is a senior foreign service officer. She spent much of her career in South Asia before um, helping me to spearhead the realignment of IAP and GPA. Um, I'll then turn it over to Matt Lusenhop, who is a principal deputy assistant secretary for the Bureau of Educational Cultural Affairs. Matt is also a senior fo foreign service officer who served much of his career in the Middle East and has most recently served as deputy chief of mission in Belgium and Morocco. And then finally, we'll hear from Chris Dunnett, Deputy Coordinator for the Global Engagement Center, to tell you about their work encountering influence operations from our global adversaries, particularly in the digital space. And with that, I'll turn it over to Nicole. Thank you, Michelle. So as Michelle just mentioned, there has never been a more exciting or important time to be engaged in public diplomacy and communication in shaping how the United States communicates policy and values overseas and domestically. We know the communications landscape is accelerating, and we need to communicate effectively in that type of environment. So the new Bureau of Global Public Affairs was created to strengthen strategic communications at the Department of State. We're now four months old. Let me tell you a little bit about its creation. The goal of the merger of the two bureaus at State, the Bureau of International Information Programs and the Bureau of Public Affairs, was to effectively shape communications for the United States around the world. Our focus was to bring together the best of both worlds of those two bureaus focused on strategic communications. The merger is not a new idea. In fact, this has been talked about since the integration of the US Information Agency into the State Department. In fact, that anniversary, that 20-year anniversary is tomorrow. Uh, so this, the merger of IIP and PA is long overdue and something that had been talked about for years. The difference in this effort, and I believe the reason it has been successful, is that the mission or the focus of the new bureau was, was tightly on strategic communications. So public affairs was traditionally very focused on communicating foreign policy to domestic and foreign audiences, whereas IIP focused on contextualizing uh, American foreign policy goals and American values for international audiences. When Michelle and I first looked at this merger oh, over a year ago, uh, we thought about the capabilities that would be needed to form a really effective strategic communications operation. We had a tremendous amount of support and leadership from Secretary Pompeo on the merger and the ultimate goal of strengthening communications. So Michelle and I provided guidance to a task force and they took that guidance and ran with it, created the structure and the framework for the new bureau and then flushed out the details. They worked with HR folks, budget folks, lawyers to make sure we were doing it all right, that we were getting the human resource piece right and the money piece right and they developed the structure. The merger was net neutral, and by that I mean there was no increase in budget, no increase or decrease in personnel, and no loss of programs. Uh, my colleague Matt Lusenhop will talk a little bit about some of the programs that we realigned, because while focusing the Bureau tightly on strategic communications, we realized that there's some places or there's some programs that would be better housed in other parts of the public diplomacy family. I like to use, we like to use three key words to help explain the rationale behind the merger. Integrated, agile, and future-proofed. Integrated. So we integrated the two bureaus, taking the best of both worlds. IIP's storytelling and communications, their ability to understand foreign audiences and working with posts to get insight on the ground and combine that with public affairs strategic approach, with public affairs connection, direct connection to foreign policy. And so we brought the best of both worlds together. Let me give you an example. In mid-July, as Michelle had mentioned, Secretary Pompeo hosted the second ministerial to advance religious freedom in Washington. The 2019 ministerial was the largest religious freedom event of its kind in the world. There were more than 1,000 civil society actors, religious leaders, and more than 100 foreign delegations that were part of the ministerial. GPA, the Bureau of Global Public Affairs, was critical in shaping the narrative around this event. 
We set the narrative by leveraging the Secretary's keynote address at Christians United for Israel to frame the department's religious freedom narrative in the lead-up to the ministerial. So we did work ahead of time, before the ministerial. We also amplified key players like Ambassador Brownback and other key department officials in the lead-up. We used more traditional tools as well as digital tools. So we used interviews with the press as well as our flagship social media platforms. During the ministerial, we maintained this narrative. We coordinated one-on-one interviews for the secretary and department officials, used our hubs that Michelle referenced so that we could get the messages out in foreign languages to key audiences, and we captured key moments from the ministerial digitally so that we could push creative content out uh, through our flagship social media platforms. So let me go back to the idea of integration. One of the things that Michelle mentioned is the use of data and analytics to shape our message. To be able to do that on the front end, to make sure that we're reaching the audience we need to with the most effective message. But also to be able to do that on the back end. So looking at what we did for the ministerial, evaluating what was effective and what wasn't. And then correcting and retooling our approach if there were better ways to do it, if we were not as successful as we thought we had been. Agile. Michelle talked about the fact that the news cycle is moving instantaneously. So how are we going to work together quickly to be able to deliver key messages to key audiences? How are we going to be able to get our message out to make sure that the truth is out there before the misinformation and disinformation? We are focused on fast and effective communication in addition to the longer-term communication of American values. Here's another example. So last week, we were consumed with the UN General Assembly and uh, our participation there, both the President and the Secretary. And it was an excellent opportunity to highlight American values as well as our engagement on the bilateral front. Our strategic communications campaign produced a 40% increase in public interaction with content on our flagship digital properties when compared to our 2018 messaging around the UN General Assembly. We're pretty proud of that. How did we do this? Previous efforts had been a bit isolated and were focused on key events and key speeches rather than the narrative around the UN General Assembly. So the difference in this is that we looked at the themes that we wanted to push, the narratives that we wanted to be presenting through our interviews and through our social media platforms, and we tightly organized around that, and it worked. Future-proofed. We didn't want to design a bureau just for 2019. This isn't about moving boxes around on an organizational chart or adding capacity that would only work in the short term. We were looking for a structure that would make sense five years, 10 years down the line into the future. And that means having written into our structure and the way we work a focus on exploring new platforms, new technologies, best practices, not only the technology, but also the in-person connections and relationship building. We tried to create a bureau that would attract diverse talent and ensure that we are relevant in the years to come. With these three goals in mind, integrated, agile, future-proofed, and a focus on encouraging a culture of learning and development in the new bureau, we believe we will deliver on those effective communication tools that we will effectively communicate policy and American values for many secretaries of state. Thank you. Okay. Um, hi. Good morning. My name is Matt Lissenhop. I'm the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs at the State Department, ECA. Um, at ECA, our, our focus is on that critical element of public diplomacy, people-to-people -people exchanges. Uh, as the Assistant Secretary was saying, in an increasingly digital world, meaningful real-world interaction, people-to-people -people interaction are more important than ever. So when uh, malicious actors like China or Russia try to split people apart through disinformation, 
Our counter is to bring people back together, to establish relationships that bridge divides and that build human networks uh, of people in the United States and overseas who are united in both thought and action. President Trump's national security strategy is very clear. It says people-to-people exchanges create the networks of future and current political, civil society, and educational leaders who will extend a free and prosperous world. I'd like to to highlight three elements of uh, how ECA approaches its work in this field. First, our programs are effective because we create networks of like-minded alumni around the world. Uh, In fact, our Assistant Secretary Marie Royce uh, is in Thailand today for a meeting of the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative Program bringing 150 young leaders from all over Southeast Asia to work together uh, and to to talk about the future. She's there with them today. Um, Second, a lot of our programs are are evergreen. Uh, They go back decades, some of them, but they're flexible, and they're constantly adaptable to address new threats, new priorities. Uh, And finally, the third, we're constantly optimizing our resources. We're looking at cost-efficient virtual exchanges and how those, that virtual technology can, can leverage or assist in, a, in an exchange. We're streamlining our operations with the, with the merger, and we're improving our programs through robust uh, monitoring and evaluation. So first, to talk a bit about alumni and networks. Um, one of the sayings we have in ECA is that we move people to move ideas to move policy. Um, our programs are best thought of as an investment. They're an investment in people, um, people around the world who become key allies of the United States, and American citizens who, through our programs, gain valuable experience uh, and skills that help them become more successful. I'd like to talk about the alumni of our programs and highlight some of their stories. Uh, one of our key uh, exchange programs is called FLEX, the Future Leaders Exchange. Uh, it was established in the 1990s. Right now, about 27,000 alumni uh, of that program, high school students, uh, high school age students from 21 countries of, of Europe, Eurasia, and Central Asia have participated in this program. One of them is a fellow named Gennady. Uh, he uh, is from the country of Georgia and was a a uh, flex student in Texas in 2014. Uh, As a student in Texas, he got straight A's. Uh, He was in the jazz band. He was the homecoming prince. He went back to Georgia, uh, and he applied to the U.S. Naval Academy uh, and was accepted. So right now he's studying at the U.S. Naval Academy. He'll go back to Georgia with an in-depth understanding of the United States and American culture and values, uh, and he'll be like, uh, as my military colleagues say he'll be a force multiplier for U.S.-Georgia relations. So that's, that's the power of alumni. The second is, is the evergreen nature of some of our programs. Many of our ECA programs have really go back decades. The, the International Visitor Leadership Program was, was established 80 years ago um, next year, um, and it's one of the most prestigious and, uh, and valued exchange programs that we have. Many participants in this have gone on to become leaders of nations, CEOs, business leaders, and so forth. The program remains, the framework remains the same as it was 80 years ago. We bring groups of people to the United States and let them see the United States, meet Americans, uh, meet our institutions, and experience life in the United States. Uh, But they also were able to adjust the themes of the programs to address current priorities like uh, religious freedom, Uh, countering disinformation and radicalization, and advancing women's full participation in the economy. Um, Just last week, uh, in support of the White House uh, Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, uh, we hosted 18 uh, women leaders from around the world who were here in the United States uh, meeting with U.S. companies, business incubators, financial institutions, government representatives looking at ways to reduce legal, regulatory, and cultural barriers to women's full participation in the economy. Um, The Fulbright program as well. Fulbright, of course, is the well-known academic exchange program, which sends thousands of students, scholars, professionals from the United States overseas and from overseas to the United States, a program that's well over 70 years old now. Um, But that program, too, is able to focus on uh, and on specific 
uh, regional and, and functional priorities of the, of the government. For example, uh, to highlight another uh, Fulbright uh, alumnus, uh, a fellow named Songju. Songju is part of a Fulbright initiative that we have that supports the North Korean defector community uh, and helps them attend university in the United States. Uh, Songju is a special case. He was homeless in North Korea, spent four years on the streets uh, when he was abandoned by his, his parents. Uh, he um, faced starvation and, and terrible brutality. He escaped to China and eventually made his way to South Korea and got an education. Um, well, now he's currently a Fulbrighter uh, at a university here in the district area, um, getting his PhD in conflict analysis and resolution. Uh, so Fulbright's building his capacities to focus on one of the administration's top priorities, which is conflict in the Korean Peninsula. And that's just one story out of hundreds of thousands of stories of how the exchange program really makes a difference in a person's life and can impact our ability to achieve our foreign policy objectives. And then finally, we're adapting our toolkit uh, to optimize our resources. Um, this year, we launched uh, a new program called the Academy for Women Entrepreneurs, or AWE, um, again, to support the White House Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. And this is one of the new kinds of programs that, that incorporates a virtual element. It combines an, an innovative platform with online tools and also in-person interaction. So the goal of the program is to provide women with knowledge, tools, and networks they need to turn their ideas into successful businesses. Um, uh, advisor to the President Ivanka Trump launched the program la in Colombia this summer. Uh, and this week we'll be launching a program in Chile uh, at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Women in the Economy Forum. Um, as Assistant Secretary Gaida and Nicole mentioned, some programs that had been part of the former IIP Bureau have been folded into, uh, into the ECA Bureau. A lot of thought went into that, um, and the, the goal of, of, of molding those programs into ECA is to bring programs closer together that are like, uh, like one another in goals. So, for example, we incorporated the uh, uh, Office of American Spaces, which supports our American spaces around the, around the world, uh, American corners, American cultural centers, and so forth. Um, that office now is much, close, much more closely linked with offices like Fulbright, English language programs, global education programs, uh, and, and I think we see greater efficiencies uh, in that merger. Uh, I'd also like to mention our evaluation and monitoring. Uh, we do have our own evaluation division within ECA, um, and that, uh, the goal of that is to capture the long-term impact of ECA programs as well as do rapid assessments on the effectiveness of programs. Using these, these tools, we're constantly refining and improving our programs. Uh, and you can find the uh, completed evaluations on the State Department ECA website because they're available to the public for, uh, for an in-depth look at how these exchanges impact the lives of the people who are participating. So those three elements, alumni networks, evergreen and flexible programs, and uh, efficient evaluation are three of the key uh, factors of ECA as we approach doing public diplomacy in the 21st century. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague Chris to talk about Global Engagement Center. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, well, the Global Engagement Center is really focused on one of the key challenges of our time, and that's to expose and counter uh, foreign state and non-state sponsored disinformation and propaganda, and specifically that disinformation and propaganda that is targeted at undermining U.S. policies, stability, and our interests around the world, and not only those of the United States, but importantly, also our allies and partners. Uh, I would say the GEC's uh, activities and, and its mission are closely linked uh, to public diplomacy. We work together all of the time, uh, but go a bit beyond that in that we incorporate also uh, elements such as uh, intelligence and some operational aspects as well. Um, it's really under this current administration that the GEC evolved its role from a mission that was exclusively focused on uh, really countering extremist dialogue uh, online and trying to thwart recruitment and use uh, or misuse of the information space to inspire people to violent extremism. 
Uh, and we got added the uh, tremendously large uh, additional mission of countering state-sponsored uh, propaganda and disinformation uh, and kind of generally malign manip manipulation of the information environment uh, by our nation-state competitors. Um, the primary state actors we are focused on uh, will be no surprise. Assistant Secretary Gadek talked about great, comp great power competition. Uh, so we're focused on Iran, uh, Russia, North Korea, and China uh, as the primary state actors. What the GEC is doing is really positioning itself as the mission center in an expanding network of partners that are all working together to counter this foreign propaganda and disinformation. Uh, and as we use the tools, as Matt talked about, building those networks over time of alumni and through our public diplomacy programs, we also look at how can we plug into those networks uh, as we help and partner with people around the world uh, who are also interested in exposing and countering uh, this kind of adversarial disinformation. Uh, an inherent part of our, and a really a critical part of our approach and our mission uh, is the partnership with other countries that Assistant Secretary Gaida uh, spoke about. Uh, we like to say that the fundamental advantage that we have over our adversaries that seek to misuse the information space uh, is that we have partners, uh, and they don't, generally. Uh, so uh, the GEC and many parts uh, of the U.S. government uh, interagency uh, work constantly with uh, partner governments uh, really worldwide through a variety of formal and informal partnership arrangements. Now, the GEC is engaged in a wide range of efforts to build societal resilience, uh, to reduce vulnerabilities, uh, to expose pernicious disinformation, uh, and ultimately to deter our adversaries from trying to attack us with this means. Uh, I like to liken the purveyors of uh, adversarial disinformation to internet scammers. Uh, ultimately, what they're doing is throwing a bunch of stuff at us, trying to manipulate us into doing something that's really not in our interest. Um, and as with email spam and, and cyber attacks, we can't stop our adversaries from doing what they're doing, from throwing that stuff at us. Uh, instead, we really have to focus on shaping the environment uh, in a way such as, regardless of what the adversaries do, they're less likely to be successful. Uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, this really calls for a focus on you know, building uh, awareness uh, and defenses. Uh, just think back, you know, people today are much less likely than before to click on or believe the content of some sketchy email that you get in your inbox. Um, and people also have antivirus and anti-malware tools that are installed. Uh, that's increased awareness and increased defenses, and that's really what we're looking at. Uh, some of the ways that the GEC is, is delivering on this mission, uh, first of all, we continue to execute on the GEC's original counterterrorism mission, uh, including coordinating efforts to counter propaganda from ISIS and its affiliates, Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist organizations. Uh, one example of how we're involved in this and the partnership that was spoken about is that GEC helps to lead and support the Global Counter-ISIS Coalition's uh, Communications Working Group uh, and its uh, London-based communications cell, uh, and we have a staff member that is part of that. Uh, the GEC's uh, supporting partners to increase detection and exposure of adversarial disinformation operations. Uh, much of this is through really intensive outreach to the tech sector. Uh, the GEC convenes as one part of this uh, what we call tech demos, uh, where companies, uh, national labs, groups from universities, and, and other, uh, other players present their technologies to a panel of experts uh, to assess how they might be applied uh, on this challenge of you know, adversarial disinformation. Through this, uh, GEC's identified several technologies that were originally developed for other purposes, uh, commercial things from the insurance industry to marketing and advertising uh, that have great promise for helping us to detect and defend against uh, this kind of digital information manipulation. Uh, then the GEC goes the next step and works with private sector to adapt uh, and then test these technologies against real world disinformation challenges out in the field. Uh, and where you have something uh, that's online, you can find it called the Disinfo Cloud, uh, where there's uh, kind of information about uh, some of these technologies. Uh, uh, not all of the information is there for obvious reasons, but uh, uh, we're trying to share this across the interagency and with our partners uh, as a way to help us more quickly uh, address these challenges. 
the GEC itself also has an analytics and research team that's using kind of the most sophisticated data science and digital analytics, along with other tools to help uh, both our government and our partners better understand, predict, and ultimately preempt uh, foreign disinformation. Uh, we're developing partnerships with key local social media influencers to build resistance to disinformation uh, by getting content out there that can uh, both compete in the information space and inoculate vulnerable audiences against disinformation. All of the academic research points to uh, that we use the word counter, but once disinformation is sort of out there in the wild, as we say, uh, it's very difficult. The human brain uh, has a hard time sort of... Uh, overcoming that. And any of us who have, you know, a mother who uh, sends us stuff on social media knows what that challenge is. Uh, so, uh, so inoculation is important. Uh, and the GEC is also funding numerous projects that are building the technical skills of civil society organizations, NGOs, uh, and importantly, local independent media uh, to shed light on the spread of disinformation, because it's really these local credible voices uh, that are the most effective in their own communities. Uh, and finally, I just wrap up by saying that, uh, you know, propaganda and disinformation, these are challenges as old as human society. This is not new. Uh, this is a social cultural problem that's accelerated and intensified and made more dangerous by today's communications technologies. Uh, and that's really why the GEC is getting after the problem through both technological and societal approaches. And uh, so I'd be happy to take any of your questions after. Thank you very much. Um, we have uh, got 15 minutes here for, for Q&A. Um, we will have a roving microphone, so those who would like to ask a question, please identify yourself uh, by name and affiliation. So uh, yes, let's start here in the front. Hi. I'm Jim Hansen with Security Studies Group. Uh, we focus on information operations and information warfare, and it's heartening to see any time the government organizes in a way to have a mo more coherent response to both putting out the message and fighting against uh, disinformation and, and propaganda. Um, my question would be, right now there is a very powerful, almost a stranglehold on our information space by a very small number of tech companies, Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, aside from the legacy media, but they control in a very large way what people find when they go online to find out about anything. I, I think it's been fairly well documented. We've done it, and as have plenty of others. They're not particularly amenable to the policies of the Trump administration. Consequently, when people go to find out what the State Department's doing, what Secretary Pompeo has said, and other things, the, the space is not level. The playing field is not level. Do you guys see a way to push for more transparency in the way they both build their algorithms, in the way they rate information sources as to what's credible and what's not, to ensure that there's a marketplace of ideas where the best ideas win, and not one that in many ways is dominated by the views of the, the leadership of those you know, three major technology companies. Okay. Um, yeah, I can start out by saying, uh, you know, we partner very closely, and as, as Chris mentioned uh, through the GEC, but across public diplomacy, we do partner very closely with uh, social media companies, have those relationships to um, make sure that we're doing things as effectively as possible in communicating with audiences around the world. Um, you saw in President Trump's address at the UN General Assembly, he called out this challenge about um, tech companies more broadly having a large amount of influence in the type of information that gets seen. Um, so I'd say it's an ongoing conversation. Um, you certainly bring up um, you know, a challenge for us to consider, but we, you know, we work very closely in having that conversation with them. Right here. Hi, my name is Angel with Phoenix TV from Hong Kong. And my question is today that we um, hear a lot that people highlight the word of uncertainty in today's American public diplomacy. And how would you guys view it? And uh, uh, could you please just comment more on the strategy towards specifically Asian Pacific countries? Thank you very much. I'll start off and then, um, I mean, with regard to uncertainty, um, the president's been clear, the secretary's been clear from day one about 
the values that we hold, our mission set in achieving American diplomacy across the world, as I mentioned earlier, it's focusing on American sovereignty, on um, partnering with strong sovereign and independent nations who share our values. Those values have always included um, rule of law, human dignity, religious freedom. So those have been incredibly consistent, not only within this administration, but throughout the course of American history. So uh, with regard to uncertainty and public diplomacy and the values that we're advancing, those have remained quite unchanged. And any comments on the uh, Asia-Pacific? I mean, I would say from the, from the Global Engagement Center, we're working very intensively uh, in the Asia-Pacific, uh, not just uh, with respect to China, but uh, we sort of look at what all of the, what we call threat actors are doing worldwide. Uh, and I'd say some of the things that are priorities is, uh, you know, helping societies there to maintain uh, open access to, you know, credible uh, information, uh, looking at issues or helping societies look at issues uh, uh, that might compromise that, such as concentration of media ownership uh, and uh, you know, manipulation of access to the Internet, uh, things like that. Uh, so we see this access to information as really an important part of people's rights. And, and so we're kind of helping societies uh, there that we've partnered with uh, through many years uh, to look at this new area and, and help them to understand what's going on in their information space uh, and to you know, how they might make sure that they're monitoring that. I'd just add that exchanges remain a real critical part of our engagement in, in the Indo-Pacific region. I mentioned the Young Southeast Asia Leaders Initiative. Uh, we also do quite a lot of work uh, to encourage uh, foreign students to come to the United States to study in the United States, and China is, is the largest uh, center of, of, uh, of, of students to the United States to study internationally. So there's the human people-to-people -people element is still critically important. And then, you know, our folks at in Mission China uh, who are in-country uh, communicate all the time on as many channels as they can about American policy, American values with a Chinese audience um, and, and with other audiences um, across Asia where we have missions. And so that type of conversation goes on every day through the media. As I mentioned, we've got a regional media hub in Manila to communicate regionally with um, uh, foreign audiences in language. So that happens at the hub. That happens at post through social media, through traditional media, and as they mentioned, through in-person communications as well. Okay, um, let's see. Well, we have a question right next to you, Rachel, so. Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service. Thanks for your presentation. I, question to follow on the, the last question. It's, it's really a matter of not about American values, but American policy. It's the uncertainty of the policy that seems to be at the heart of a lot of confusion in many countries, over, uh, foreign countries, including allies as well as, as enemies. Uh, there's a, it seems to be a breakdown between what the White House is saying and what the State Department may be saying. There's a, a kind of dysfunctioning going on in the White House Communication Office in terms of articulating policies every day and having people appointed within the State Department to talk about these policies at a very high level with a great deal of credibility. That seems to be the problem of, of the uncertainty. Uh, um, this streamlining that's going on, it's, it's all well and good, but uh, if you're not focused on dealing with the uncertainty of policy, then you're, how can you ever be really that effective? I would ask, what uncertainty are you talking about? I mean, are there specific examples? You know, I'll say we are, White House and State Department have been uh, very... All right, I'll just give you an example with North Korea. Uh, there's been a lot of talk for the last several years in the uh, policy community about how to deal with North Korea, how to get moved towards uh, denuclearization. The idea was that there were, should be no... Um, efforts that would encourage North Korea to think that they can uh, keep their nuclear facilities, keep their missile capabilities. North Korea has gone on with a series of short-range nuclear tests the last four months or so, at least since May, I believe, was the first one. And the, uh, the, the president has talked about, well, this is something that everybody should do. Every nation does short-range tests. Don't worry about it. Most of the other people that are outside the government don't believe that's really 
in the long-term interests of the United States and its principal allies, Japan and South Korea, to allow that kind of testing to go on without commenting about the unacceptableness of that. I just, that's one example of the uncertainty. You might see more in other areas of the world, but that's one area I, f I follow. This whole thing with the uh, with, uh, trade with China and whether or not tariffs are hurting or helping the process. The policy process is not being well explained enough to, dis, uh, to, de to determine whether or not this is really helpful or hurtful to the American people or to the Chinese, or even advancing the negotiation in any way. Some response. Yeah, no, I would just say with the, your um, example about North Korea, you're citing differences in what the administration is saying in folks outside of government. So, you know, not necessarily about our unity. And White House and State Department have been uh, in lockstep and, and unified in our message. And then when it, when it comes to um, China and trade, you know, President has been very clear broadly about uh, trade and the values of fairness and reciprocity. And that's what we are charged with communicating. And that is making sure that fairness and reciprocity is a part of the conversation and the values that we're talking about when it comes to American foreign policy. Um, let's see. Well, let's take a question in the back row and then loop down to the front here. Thank you. Um, Connie Kim, reporter from Voice of America. Um, government broadcast agencies like VOA and Radio Free Asia aim to target outside information to countries like North Korea, where information is strictly prohibited. So how effective do you think that pumping information to North Korea will be effective in getting American values across? Yeah, I'm sorry, can you uh, rephrase that, the your part of your question? So how effective do you believe that pumping outside information into North Korea will be effective in promoting American values across? Yes, I mean, certainly we see a lot of challenges with um, sharing information with any closed community or society. Um, as you mentioned, Voice of America and, and the USAGM properties more broadly, um, they're separate from the State Department, but we sit on the board, um, certainly have a really valuable part to play in making sure that we're trying to reach closed communities in other ways. Um, it remains a challenge. Uh, North Korea is an example. I'd say some other uh, countries, GEC, uh, tackles this challenge as well. But you have to be creative in thinking about um, not only media channels, but... Um, you know, uh, influencers, communities, the, the networks that we're creating through our people-to-people -people ties. Okay. Let's take a question from the front. Good morning. Thank you for being here. My name is Victoria Mireta, and I'm a graduate student at Georgetown School of Foreign Service. And I would like to ask about how does GPA and the State Department in general advocate for public diplomacy at home? We've seen a rise on isolationist sentiments, and so how can you convince the public at home that public diplomacy is a good investment? So that's a really good question. Uh, part of uh, legacy public affairs activities was, is, was communicating to the American people and talking about the value of what we do overseas and why we do it. So the, the reasoning and the rationale behind foreign policies and then how we communicate those overseas. So that is part of the new Bureau of Global Public Affairs, uh, outreach to the American people, uh, talking about foreign policy, and then more broadly, talking about what the State Department does. Uh, there's a bit of a recruiting piece there, too. We partner with our human resources colleagues so that we can get out more broadly and spread the message about the State Department and, and what we do. You'll see that the Secretary has been very vocal and has taken uh, a number of domestic trips and has been uh, a champion talking about the State Department and about foreign policy. I'd add that, you know, one important mandate for, for the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs is to encourage Americans uh, to go overseas, to study languages, we have a, uh, to, to, to experience foreign cultures and foreign places. So that's a, that's a real key element of what we do as a bureau. And I think when we do that, we build up that understanding and support of the importance of foreign relations and, and, and foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You had a question. Uh, Rob Whitmore, I want to thank you very much for being here today and making this overall presentation about the strategic direction. I think it's great that we have everyone together uh, doing so, and uh, we have some great representation, so thank you for that. I'm wondering if there's a follow-up in terms of some of the things that you did highlight and identify in terms of increasing awareness and access to participation in many of these programs. 
Are there, are there events scheduled perhaps back at your uh, department that we should become aware of or begin to follow to be able to identify some of the talent that we do have um, here to participate in many of these initiatives? I mean, I, I would just mention uh, a key element of a lot of our programs is to get American communities and, and Americans involved. Uh, through uh, our International Visitor Leadership Program would not work without American volunteers who are willing to provide home hospitality, who are willing to share their time, uh, to spend time with uh, our participants. Um, the same with uh, um, a lot of our youth exchanges. Wouldn't, we could not do them if we didn't have host families who are willing to step up and host students. So I think, uh, I think we have a pretty robust uh, presence on the on the internet on the websites and and lots of information on how Americans can get involved in international exchange so I would encourage you to take a look at that yeah we also have the US Diplomacy Center at the State Department hosts a lot of good programming uh, more about public diplomacy and um, foreign policy more broadly uh, at the State Department which we encourage the public to come to come see but a lot of great exhibits on the history of diplomacy and then current conversations that are happening as well you just gave me a good idea, so maybe we will <clears throat> work on following up more specifically on, on some of the some of those activities and initiatives. Yeah. And then from the GEC, I mentioned the the tech demos, and so we hold those uh, about every other week at the WeWork uh, location uh, over near the White House, so that they're more easily accessible uh, to our outside partners. And so, uh, if people have an, uh, an interest in those, we had a question over here. I think. Jackson, do you have a question? Got your hand up before. Hi, uh, my name is David Jackson. Um, I'm a former director of Voice of America, but I also had an opportunity to work in the State Department after that. One of the things I remember is I'm, I was very impressed by the public diplomacy um, um, people at State at that time, but I also got the impression that PD was sort of a second-class citizen in those days. And I was my question is, is this recent consolidation managed to finally give the attention and the um, and the focus on PD that was lacking in the past? Uh, I'll start, and then I'll turn it over to my. Uh Foreign Service colleagues, um, in in my year and a half at the State Department, I have not witnessed that um, second-class citizen portrayal of public diplomacy. And to my point earlier, I think that's because public diplomacy is more important than ever. It is integrated deeply with policy. We work hand-in-hand with our policymakers. Um, And this is the same thing that's happening across the private sector as well, where you see marketing and communications becoming core to a business, working hand-in-hand with the business Um, side, business drivers, uh, C-suite, and that's because the world is so interconnected and transparent, right? Anything, any action policy-wise that we're taking communicates something, and so you have public diplomacy at the center of those conversations increasingly. So I've seen uh, it rise in importance, if anything. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and when we talk about the Bureau of Global Public Affairs, really the, the integration of the the strengths of IIP and PA have, have elevated that functionality and, and that function. And, and that's one of the things that excites me about uh, the new Bureau is that we do have a seat at the table and are part of those conversations, as Michelle said. I mean, I th- if, if you just look at sort of how people reflect, reflect the policy. Uh, we have public diplomacy officers who are in leadership positions around the department. Lots of PD officers are ambassadors now and deputy chiefs of mission. Uh, my counterpart uh, in the Bureau of European uh, Affairs, one of the biggest bureaus in the department, is also a PD officer and a former ambassador. So I think if there if there was sort of a, a I mean, any integration, it's going to be take a little while to get the fit right, but I think at this point it, it's it's working very, very smoothly. I mean, as a PD officer myself, I certainly don't feel like a second-class citizen. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I would just point to the, you know, the National Security Council uh, has uh, inaugurated a strategic communication sort of policy coordination committee, which is sort of the, the ultimate blessing that you're either important or problematic, uh, but it will take a, important at solving problems uh, in this case. And, and so I think that uh, there is, a, you know, increasing, certainly from, you know, the beginning of my career, uh, increasing uh, recognition that public diplomacy isn't something separate, but it's just part of the toolkit to advancing whatever policy interests we're working on. 
Okay, well, I know that um, our panelists have to rush back and take care of important business. So uh, I think we will wrap up at this point. Uh, I want to thank you all so very much for coming. This has been absolutely fabulous. And, uh, and hope that we can continue the dialogue. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.